Well, this year at Ordinary Time, we've been doing a study in the book of Ephesians, and Paul's been teaching and praying and, and trying to reveal to us uh, what's really real about ordinary life. Things like brushing our teeth or driving or making sure that we're on time somewhere. Paul's been trying to kind of peel back a curtain and allow us to see what really exists behind that. Now, um, I, this, this sermon should come with a warning. Um, I am going to attempt to mess with ultimate things this morning. And uh, I am neither a world-class theologian or a world-class philosopher or anything like that. But I think Paul, as I said, he's been teaching and praying us towards something that I think is really important. So let me just introduce you to a couple of these big ideas. If one were to try to understand the social psychologist and kind of the, the people who have really created the worldview around analytical psychology, if one were to try to understand that, and I have, then what emerges is something like this that the dominant worldview of the last few generations is that the world is terrifying. And if you really knew reality, you would fear. And so that human beings then just live these quiet lives of desperation. Because what the world really boils down to, according to this story, is things just eat things, and they chomp them between their teeth, and they become a part of their being, and then they pass from them. And that that's all that's really going on in the world. And that no person of any sense, but actually it's more important, no person of any courage would bail out of that reality by believing in God. That's, that's what wimps do. People of real courage face the fact that life is really meaningless and that you just kind of do the best you can with what you have. And so you muck around with questions like, who are we? Why were we born? What are we supposed to do on this planet? Why are there senseless accidents and acts of nature? Is life a giant slot machine or roulette wheel? Is it really possible to not live haunted, self-defeated lives? And where do we find the answers to these questions? And so what the brilliant thinkers of the last 50 years or so since the 60s have said is that feeling helpless against this reality, we all become filled with anxiety, especially we fear life. And when we're not fearing life, we fear death. And we carry around in us this sense that we're different, that we're not a fly. And we're not even an elephant. We, we, we sense that there is something different about us. But yet, all of us end up in the ground, this story says. And this, of course, then leads to all manner of disillusionment with or overemphasis on the body. And so what these brilliant thinkers say is that the basic motivation for human behavior is our innate need to control this very primal anxiety and to deny constantly the terror of death. So one of these famous um, psychoanalysis has said this, 
that the lion, I want you to really try to capture this. I want you to just kind of picture this. Picture like a National Geographic scene from uh, one of those shows on big cats, you know? So just sort of picture this. The lion must feel more secure that God is on his side than the gazelle about to become his dinner. And what we're trying to say is, we're all just these gazelles, and we're going around trusting God. But then a tsunami hits, or an earthquake, and you, you know, you pick up your phone one morning or open your laptop and find out that 17,000 people have been killed somewhere in an earthquake, and you realize, nah, we're just all gazelles. And we're just sort of lucky that no lion has come upon our path yet. And so as this story goes, we then all strive to make death unconscious by a myriad of substance abuses or tactics for self-esteem, for becoming important people. And that this fighting, this grasping for self-esteem, this narcissism, so the story goes, is then what explains what's at the heart of human suffering and evil. And so when the substances or tactics don't work anymore, when trying to become an excessive control freak lets us down, when we're overwhelmed with life, then say the psychologists, we begin to lose touch with reality. And so stresses and depressions and anxieties of all kind come upon humanity. That's one story of the world, and it explains traffic, and toothbrushes, and jogging, and being on time somewhere. That's one story. And multiple hundreds of millions of people, billions of people on this earth, live with that as their story. Because following Jesus is not a popular answer. It seems like superstition in the face of this hard, cold science. Jesus feels like superstition, and so his followers are just those people who are unwilling to face the reality, the brutality of life. Because for most people, and I, I don't do this very often, but I just want to alert you that this is going to be one of the top 10 or 20 sentences I've ever said to you. So just be alert. Because most people do not think that Jesus will get them where they want to go. They got a thing going on. Most people desperately trying to secure themselves against the brutality of life, against the capriciousness, the arbitrariness of life, and why bad things happen to good people. And on and on it goes. And most people do not suppose on an intuitive sort of level that Jesus will get them where they want to go. So he remains a very unpopular answer to this problem. This problem is, is there a way to relax? Is there a way to totally lean on God while standing as a passionate individual in the image of God? And of course, Paul's prayer in Ephesians alerts us to the fact that there is a different worldview. And that Paul's worldview, as it's seen through this prayer, is that the world is actually something in which we can have extravagant confidence in God. So if you look at your bulletin, if you've got your Bible with you, Paul begins his prayer by saying, for this reason, 
And so the first three chapters of Ephesians have basically been this rhythm of Paul teaching and praying. It's like he starts preaching or teaching, and then that leads to this prayer, and then he goes back to teaching, and then there's more prayer. And so here he says, when I consider what God's doing in and through the church, when I consider the whole purpose of God, I kneel. Now, for us, we wouldn't think much of that. But there's a reason Paul said, I kneel, and that is, what's normal Jewish posture for prayer? When you see people at the wailing wall, what are they doing? Standing. The normal posture for Jews for prayer is standing. But there's four or five times in the Bible where kneeling happens during prayer, and it almost always is meant to depict for us some sort of really deeply earnest desire. And Paul's deep, earnest desire for the church, for human beings, when he thinks about what God's doing in it, is these four things, that you would be strengthened, that you'd know love, or that you would be established in love, excuse me, that you would know this love, and that this would lead to the fullness of God. So let's look at what he says. So first he says, I pray that God may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now the Greek text actually says they're your inner man. And scholars have not known exactly how to translate this. It ends up most places being translated inner being. But there are a group of scholars who say, and I think this is interesting in translators, who think that it actually means inner, capital I, man, capital M. That what Paul's picturing is Christ is in you. And may you be strengthened in that inner man that is in you. That may you be made strong and capable to stand in Jesus is really what Paul's saying, and that this would happen through the Spirit. And so this is one of those moments where all of us who come from backgrounds that maybe we think they're not Pentecostal or they're not charismatic or something, and so we'd think, well, you know, I don't really understand much about the Holy Spirit or that sort of thing. This is one of those passages that alerts us that as Christians, we worship and follow a Trinitarian God. This isn't a binary reality a father and a son. This is a trinitary reality of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Paul alerts us here that strength for the Christian life comes from the Spirit. So he prays then, if you look next, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That is to say, what what Paul's seeing here is something like this, that Jesus dwelling in us is wisdom and inspiration and love for life. And again, the Greek text here is important because Paul knows that he's writing to people in whom Jesus uh, sort of resides or who is in them, but the Greek text here says something like this, I pray that Jesus will just really settle down in you. Can you feel that? That it would be just this really settled, concrete reality in you. That's what he's praying for. And of course, uh, Jesus and John in our gospel reading this morning said that this is exactly what was going to happen that when the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, departed the scene, God the Son who could only be one place at a time because he was fully human as as well as being fully divine, he would send this other comforter who was of the same being but could be anywhere at all times, including in all of our hearts. And so as John, the gospel, uh, and John this morning said, the helper, the spirit of truth, will be with you forever. I won't leave you as orphans, but I'll be with you. Well, next Paul prays that we would be rooted and established in love. That is to say, you know, agape love, we always hear that term. Agape love just simply means 
the positive action of God that wills our good. Except for maybe he doesn't. Maybe the world is capricious. Maybe this is all a fairy tale. And this is why I said this passage this morning brings us to ultimate things. And I think this is important this morning, not just for us, but I want to suggest that this is the fundamental apologetic probably for the rest of our life. The apologetic that I grew up with, things like, can you prove to me that the Bible's trustworthy? Can you prove to me, you know, evidence that demands a verdict, that Jesus rose from the dead? Those things are all unspeakably important. But in terms of sequence, they're not first. For most people today, what's first is, is there a God? If there is a God, which God? Does any of this matter? Those kinds of questions come first. And Jesus said we're to be salt. We're to be light in this world. We're to be his apology. That is to say, his explanation for what's going on in the world. And if we're not grounded in the reality that there is something real here, then I think the Christian faith in our, in the Western world, in our time, is in real danger. Because I am telling you, Jesus, following Jesus, is not a popular answer to the question of is life really nothing more than people and things eating people and going into the ground and that's all there is. See, that feels honest, it feels strong, it feels scientific. People are born and they go into the ground. Flies die on your window seal. You can see it. You throw them in the trash. That's real. <clears throat> well, again, I ask you, when people like Jesus and Paul say things like this, are we dealing with knowledge is this something that's true and real? And Paul evidently thinks it is, for look what he says next. I pray that you'll have power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And what Paul's picturing here is, <clears throat> excuse me, is precisely a kind of knowledge that doesn't set aside but transcends Greek intellectual knowledge. It's exactly what Paul's talking about here. He's sort of speaking against the scientism of his day. The, the knowledge, the Greek knowledge that was, that was thought at it, uh, during its era to be the most solid and real thing. And so I love the way Eugene gets this in the, the, our reading from Corinthians this morning in the message. Uh, Eugene has Paul saying this, God's wisdom is mysterious. It goes deep into the interior of his purposes. It's not the latest message, but more like the oldest. That what God has determined as the way to bring out the best in us long before we ever arrived on the scene. And then get this sentence. The experts of our day haven't a clue about what his eternal plan actually is. And then Paul says, I want you to have knowledge. Look at your text. I want you to know this love that surpasses sort of the Greek intellectual knowledge. <clears throat> a young American family adopted a Haitian girl who was about five and, as you can imagine, had grown up in poverty that we can't even imagine. They brought her home. It was time to have their first dinner. And so, I don't know, somewhere in the southeast. And uh, so picture just kind of a normal American dinner table, you know, pork chops and mashed potatoes and a vegetable and a salad. And this girl's eyes are just wide. She had never seen that much food in her life. Well, she'd also never seen her two teenage brothers. 
13 and 15, and how those pork chops barely made it around the table once. And the mashed potatoes, she'd never seen so much food, and she'd never seen such voracious appetites in a human being. And when the plates were all clean on the table, you know, the mother with her keen intuition looked across the table and could see that this little five-year-old girl was troubled. And the mother, maybe from the inspiration of the Lord, I don't know, knew that this girl's afraid there's no more food. She's afraid it's gone. And so the mother didn't give her an argument. Her mother took her by the hand and walked her over to the pantry and opened the door. And then took her over to the refrigerator and opened the door. And then down to the freezer and opened the doors. And out to the garage where the extra canned goods are and opened the pantry. And this is what Paul's doing for us today. That that which we fear the most, that that which the sociologists and anthropologists and psychologists of the last 50 years would tell us, if you're really a real human being, you'll face that life isn't real at all. And Paul says, yeah, that's an explanation. But it's not what Paul says he knows. And so he says, finally, I pray that you'll be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God, that you'll really see what's going on here. Because as our gospel reading said this morning, the godless world can't take him in because it doesn't have eyes to see him. It doesn't know what to look for. But you know him, Jesus says, meaning you know the spirit in you and with you, and you know what's real. So when I said we were going to be brought by Paul to ultimate things this morning, it simply means this, that both these worldviews cannot be right. The world really is arbitrary and inconsistent and given to sudden meaningless changes and events, or God really is all-loving and all-powerful creator acting for us. And what Paul wants us to know is that when that becomes our mental image, when that becomes our picture of reality, then what Paul's picturing in his analogy is that we then begin to put roots down into God's love. Or switching metaphors, it becomes the rock-solid foundation of our lives. And it happens in a particular way that drives the social scientists of our day crazy. Because it happens first and foremost on our knees. Paul, he started this morning saying, when I consider myself, everything I've told you these first three chapters, I kneel. A passage I love from one of Peterson's books, talking about kneeling, says this. Kneeling is an act of voluntary defenselessness. While on my knees, I cannot run away. I cannot assert myself. I place myself in a position of willed submission, vulnerable to the will of the person before whom I am bowing. It's an act of retreating from the action so that I perceive what the action is without me in it, without me taking up space, without me speaking my peace. On my knees, I'm no longer in a position to flex my muscles, to strut or cower or hide in the shadows or show off on the stage. I become less so that I can be aware of more. I assume a posture that lets me see what reality looks like 
without the distorting lens of either my timid avoidance or my aggressive domination. The exact two things that the best thinkers of our world say every human being does. They become aggressive top dogs to make sure that they are at least the lion, if not more, or they engage in all kinds of avoidance techniques, normally through substance abuse. But on our knees, I set my agenda aside for a time and become still present to God. So what Paul wants us to hear this morning is that what's most real, what lies behind everything the scientists can see, is a world of extravagance. And Paul wants us to know the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. Paul would say something like, reach out and experience its breadth. Test its length. Plumb its depth. Rise to the heights. Live full lives. Live in the fullness of God. And then he closes with this doxology. And we'll stop with this too. Glory to God in the church. Glory to God in the Messiah. Glory in Jesus. Glory down through all the generations. Glory through all the millennia. Oh, yes. Glory to God. Amen.